Hello, this is Esther Provo, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the April 8th issue of the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And now on to our first article. Justin Trudeau has been battered by crisis after crisis. A decade into his leadership, why do liberals still think he's their party's best bet? Ottawa, even on the playground of the College Jean de Brouf circa 1984, Justin Trudeau was a polarizing figure. This was Montreal, after all, at the tail end of his father's prime ministership. Strong feelings clung to the family name, residue of the Federalist victory in Quebec's first failed referendum that encircled it, on separation and the constitutional dramas that encircled it, and boys at the prestigious Jesuit school were fully apprised of the sharpest polemical takes. I guess kids that age are the reflection of their parents' talk at home, said Mark Miller, who befriended the young Trudeau when they met in advanced English at Brebeuf that year. He was, you know, the son of the guy that was trying to destroy Quebec, or the symbol of national unity, Miller called. From his very youth, he's a guy who has been used to people not knowing who he is, very public, and totally mischaracterizing him. Of course, by now, pretty much everyone knows Justin Trudeau, and has an opinion about him, too. On April 14, it will be 10 years since Pierre Elliott Trudeau's eldest son became leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. The decade saw him rise from a floppy-haired backbencher on a party on the ropes to someone who bucked expectations from the boxing ring to the ballot box. His unlikely victory in the 2015 election, the first campaign to see a party vault from third to first place in 90 years, might well have saved the storied Liberals from ruin. And though they've only returned with minority governments and shrinking shares of the popular vote, the party won again under Trudeau's leadership in 2019 and 2021. To his supporters, he has been a fine prime minister, the steward of a progressive liberal administration responsible for Canada's strongest national climate action to date, increased parental payments that have reduced child poverty, and the placement of Indigenous reconciliation to the top of the federal agenda. His government is lauded for saving continental trade from Donald Trump's populist protectionism. It steered the country through the historic rupture of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has killed more Canadians than died in the Second World War. Yet many of these same actions spawned legions of Trudeau's detractors. Out West, his very name is reviled in some quarters for climate policies seen as unfairly punitive to the fossil fuel sector. The government's handling of the pandemic, which included the imposition of vaccination requirements for people in some jobs, helped fuel the so-called Freedom Convoy protest crisis last year. And some in his own party believe he's tackled too far to the left, or weakened the organization in trying to expand its participants beyond the loyal, dues-paying partisans of old. Trudeau has also weathered controversies over almost eight years in power. There have been revelations he repeatedly wore racist makeup, and allegations he pressured his justice minister to intervene in the prosecution of a big Quebec-based company. He has broken promises, such as when he decided against charging, against changing Canada's electoral system despite so many earnest earlier pledges to do so. Polls suggest Trudeau's Liberals would have a tough time beating the Conservatives, led by notorious partisan scrapper Pierre Polivier, if an election were held today. This is where we find Trudeau 10 years into his Liberal leadership. Having inherited the political baggage of his father's name, he has added more through his own time as Prime Minister. 
but that experience with other people's judgment makes him well poised to keep pushing the government's agenda, said Miller, who has stuck by Trudeau for years and is now Crown Indigenous Relations Minister in his cabinet. Like others close to the Prime Minister, Miller is 100% sure Trudeau means it when he says he will stay on as Liberal leader for the next election. It's a question it seems the Prime Minister can't answer enough, amid stubborn talk that forces of change are blowing, always dangerous for the party in power and that possible heirs to the Liberal throne are waiting in the wings. Yet none of this would bother Trudeau, who has developed a sort of shell, Miller said, a sense of comfort being the target of toxicity in today's politics. What happens next may well define this Liberal Prime Minister's place in Canadian history, not to mention his party's place in federal politics. After a decade in which he has already left his indelible, Trudeau-esque mark, Navdeep Baines remembers the jokes, his seat in Mississauga was rock solid, safe as an unelected spot in the Senate. But it wasn't so funny when the Liberals got crushed in the 2011 election. The party posted its worst result ever, with just 34 MPs elected, and Baines was one of the liberal, Liberals turfed from the House of Commons. It was a very tough loss. Devastating. Baines recalled over the phone recently, that was an important reminder in politics to take nothing for granted. Questions swirled about the future of what was once deemed Canada's natural governing party. Was there room for a centrist political organ in a more polarized post-recession country? Should it merge with the now stronger New Democratic Party? Was this the dawn of an era of conservative domination? For Baines, the right person to lead the party from this historic nadir was Justin Trudeau, the Liberal MP first elected in the Montreal riding of Papineau in 2008. But when they spoke about it, Trudeau flat out rejected the idea, Baines said. Around that time, Trudeau expressed concerns about the Liberal Party's tendency to pin its hopes on a new leader, instead of reassessing its structure and raison d'etre more broadly. After the 2011 defeat, Trudeau told the CBC, Because of the history packaged into my name, a lot of people are turning to me in a way that actually, to be blunt, concerns me. Other Liberals shared such worries. The party needed to shake the perception it was primarily a vehicle for politicians with ambition for power, and instead show people it was geared toward the public interest. Clearly, the trust in, the confidence in, the party wasn't resonating anymore with Canadians, said Anna Ganey, another Trudeau ally who would become party president from 2014 to 2018. Somehow, the party lost touch with people and what people needed and wanted and hoped for, she said. Sometime after the 2011 defeat, Trudeau changed his mind and decided to run, announcing his candidacy in October 2012. According to Baines, who was among a core group of Trudeau allies who gathered to plan and support his run for the leadership, the son of Pierre Trudeau had acquired a shrewd political sense that helped him see an opportunity few others noticed. He realized at the time that he had an opportunity to rebuild the party from the bottom up that he had an opportunity not only to grow the Liberal Party, but to create a movement that could help him win and form government, and do so immediately, Bain said. That wasn't a belief that many had. There was already buzz around Trudeau's potential to defy expectations after he beat Conservative Senator Patrick Brazeau in a charity boxing match in the spring of 2012, but he was not expected to lose the Liberal leadership. Trudeau was effectively coronated, clinching the leadership with more than 80% of the votes on April 14, 2013, at an event in Ottawa. 
To some liberals, this was a prime chance for the party's rebirth. He was seen as a unifying force on whose watch the party could redefine itself as a moot for people, instead of, in the least forgiving view, a club for aspirants to power. Trudeau himself, in his leadership victory speech in 2013, alluded to this problem when he declared the era of the hyphenated liberal was over. He was referring to the internecine personality battles of yore, when factions supporting figures like John Turner, Jacques Chrétien, and Paul Martin, Jacques jockeyed for power within the party, the prize being presumed occupation of the prime minister's office. When it came in, that vision and unifying force and factor, at a time where things were pretty bleak, immediately provided an uplift to the party, said Azam Ishmael, a senior liberal official who has been the party's national director since 2016. Trudeau soon took the party in a new direction. In 2014, he booted all liberal members of the Red Chamber from the party's caucus amidst a roiling scandal over Senate expenses. According to Ganey, the Trudeau liberals were also evident, were also envious of how the Democrats in the United States under President Barack Obama had employed a sophisticated digital strategy. Adopting a similar approach, the Trudeau team tried to modernize the liberal machine, Ganey explained. They also announced that they would hold open nominations, even as they recruited, had recruited a host of impressive figures to run for the party, like Christian Freeland and Francois-Philippe Champagne. Then during the 2015 campaign, the Liberals broke through with a host of election promises, branded as real change. They would legalize marijuana and change election to the system. The second one never happened. With a nod to the post-occupied Zeitgeist of the early 2010s, this would increase taxes on the rich, and they would break the no-deficit dogma that had persisted since the Chrétien-Martin years in order to finance infrastructure projects. It was enough to clinch a majority government in 2015, a feat that remains the high watermark of Trudeau's tenure as liberal leader. Yet, criticism remains, even from within the extended liberal family. From his corner office across the street from Parliament Hill, Senator Percy Down worries that the big red tent has shrunk on Trudeau's watch. The party lost a lot of corporate memory when he dispelled Down and the other liberal sen senators from caucus, he said. He also suggested more fiscally cautious liberals are wary of the Trudeau government's profligate ways. Another point of contention with Trudeau's liberal party is the decision to open party activities to registered supporters instead of dues-paying members. For Down, this hollowed out the party by allowing visitors to enter the party and supplant a smaller number of seasoned partisans who would gain experience and influence over a number of years. Surveying the walls of his office, Down pointed out photos of liberal giants of yore. Here, Lester B. Pearson, there Jean Chrétien, for whom Down worked as chief of staff when he was prime minister. Down said the current Marai minister pales in comparison to these pantheons of the party. We live of celebrity. And if his last name had been anything but Trudeau, he would never have been elected leader, Down said. Others believe the party needs to renew efforts to inspire volunteers and connect with young supporters. Mir Ahmad, a liberal activist who is running for party president ahead of its national Convention in May said the number of registered young liberals has significantly decreased since 2015. She thinks the party needs to prove people can still join and use it to achieve progressive policies in government, like marijuana or assisted dying legislation.
People need to remember that the party is not just cabinets, not just caucus. Ahmad said, the more time we spend in government, the more time we need to remind ourselves of who sent us here. Trudeau's popularity has also fallen since his post-2015 honeymoon, said David Coletto, chief executive officer of the polling firm Abacus Data. The trend really started after the SNC-Lavalin affair in 2018, he said, when prime when then-Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould, another one of Trudeau's star recruits in 2015, accused the prime minister and top officials of inappropriately pressuring her to intervene in a prosecution against the company. It's an example of how Trudeau's original public image as a positive, sunny ways leader has been sullied by his years in office, Coletto said. Many also believe that the Prime Minister has also tried to sow divisions for political gain despite his initial promises to never do so. Coletto said, citing his firm's polling data, even Liberals have accused him of this, including Quebec MP Joël Lightbound, who held a news conference during the Freedom Convoy crisis to slam his party for using vaccination mandates as a wedge to win votes in the 2021 campaign. When you look at where his numbers have taken hits over time, it's been because that initial impression, that initial hope that people had about him, about what he would represent, was hurt, he said. Part of the challenge is that Trudeau has been overexposed. In the public, I said Baines who was re-elected in 2015 and served as Trudeau's industry minister until he left politics in 2021. That's especially true since the pandemic, when Trudeau addressed the public on a near-daily basis for extended press conferences about the crisis. Because of this, the party should no longer always place him front and centre for all of its policies and announcements, Bain said. When you've been in politics and in power now for close to a decade, it takes a toll on one's personal popularity and the party's popularity, and he's very self-aware of that and understands those dynamics. But if the pandemic strained Trudeau's public image, it also fed his enthusiasm to keep pushing his political agenda to several people close to him. During the depth of the crisis, the government proved it could quickly roll out programs like temporary jobless and wage supports that experience invigorated Trudeau and made him a more hands-on leader in cabinet, said one senior advisor to the prime minister who spoke on condition they aren't named. He's kind of gone from chairing the board to putting his hands firmly on the wheel, the advisor said. The ultimate destination can be gleaned in the story the liberals are trying to tell in the wake of this year's federal budget, that they will use Ottawa's spending power responsibly, they claim, to put Canada in a position to prosper as the world shifts away from trade with autocracies like China and sets up new economies decoupled from greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. Yet risks abound. According to Scott Reid, who was a top official under the Liberal Prime Minister Paul Martin, the party under Trudeau has become the political organ for the professional class, urban dwellers with generally progressive social and economic views. With conservatives dominant in the prairies and rural areas, this makes the Liberals' Quebec base of seats all the more important. A vulnerability, perhaps, but also the main reason that Trudeau remains vital to the party's chances since he is best placed to secure votes in his home province, Reid argued. For all the slings and arrows that Trudeau has suffered, Reid said the Prime Minister is essential to the Liberals' electoral fortunes. The Trudeau advisor said there's also a danger that Liberals get squeezed between the left and right if Conservatives can successfully argue government spending is out of control. And New Democrats convince enough progressives the government has failed, 
on a host of their priorities, from climate action to reconciliation. Coletto argued the biggest threat is if an appetite for change takes root across the electorate. If that happens, the next election likely won't be about show anyways, he said. It will be about whether voters feel the alternatives can be trusted to the standard of federal leadership. Re-election is more likely than likely in my view, Coletto said. But for many, Trudeau remains as inspirational as ever. Almost everyone who spoke to the star for this story said he is still the best leader for the party. There's a clear recognition that because of the Prime Minister and his ability to connect with Canadians, there has been a lot of success in the past with three election wins, said Bain. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. There's a clear recognition that because of the Prime Minister and his ability to connect with Canadians, there's been a lot of success in the past with three election wins, said Baines. Ishmael, the party's national director, points to the Prime Minister's speech in December, the first in-person holiday gathering for the party's MPs since the start of the pandemic. The speech contained the usual boasts about signature government policies, from climate action to affordable childcare, but also included pointed partisan jabs at Paul Evra and the Conservatives whom Trudeau accused of spreading misinformation for their own gain. For Ishmael, it was a preview of the flight ahead and showed Trudeau still has a fire to compete, scars and all. Every single Liberal I spoke to days after that, he said, was walking on cloud nine. And on to our next article. Susan Delacourt, Canada's relationship with the U.S. is in decline, and no one wants to talk about it. This past week, on the very same day Donald Trump was being placed under arrest in New York, many of the leading voices in the Canadian-U.S. relationship were jammed into packed meeting rooms and corridors at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Toronto. They were there to talk mainly about what's going right between Canada and the United States economically. They were not there to talk about what's gone so wrong with Trump or politics in general in the Trump era. Yet whenever any speaker did broach the subject of Trump, or more broadly, the crumbling state of democracy in North America, a definite ripple went through the crowded ballroom. Back in 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, the U.S. was the principal exporter of democracy worldwide. Frequently and successfully, frequently hypocritically, said Ian Bremmer, head of the Eurasia Group, which hosted this inaugural U.S.-Canada summit in Toronto. In 2023, you can make the argument that the United States is increasingly the leading exporter of tools that damage and even destroy democracy, including in the United States, including in Canada. Chris Coons, who sits on the powerful U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee and was one of the marquee speakers at the summit, handled the Trump situation this way. I've been talking with colleagues of mine in the Senate who are saying, why are you in Toronto when there's so much excitement in New York today? I said, this is the best possible day to be outside. That got big laughs from the crowd, as did an off-the-cuff remark from Kelly Kraft who Trump sent to Canada as his U.S. ambassador from 2017 to 2019. It's amazing what a Twitter feed will do to an ambassador's state of mind, Kraft said. I'm just thankful that that gentleman did not discover TikTok while I was in Canada. Another former U.S. ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, was one of the few speakers to publicly say on stage what many were buzzing about in the hallways of the Ritz. What I worry about most for the Canada-US relationship is what's happening back at home, Heyman said. And today is a perfect example. It's a huge mistake not to put that on the table. 
More than 50 years after Pierre Trudeau compared U.S.-Canada relationships to sleeping with an elephant, it seems the beast is still lurking. But now, it's now the elephant in the room. The force that is impossible to ignore, but also to confront. I sat down with Bremer midway through the day's proceedings and asked him how this conversation could be put on the table, not just at the summit, but in some ongoing way. How do Canada and the United States grapple with the reality he talked about in his opening remarks to the summit? The fact that politics has become a lot more toxic and polarizing, and that the United States is no longer the democratic beacon it once claimed to be to Canada and the world. First of all, Bremer said, it requires candor. When I say that the Americans and Canadians need to be honest with each other, we also need to be honest about things we're a little embarrassed about, we're a little ashamed about, he said. We need to be willing to say that. So in that spirit, Bremer flatly declared that the U.S. political system no longer shines an example for Canada or the world. Let's not just talk about my earlier statement about exporting social media tools that destroy democracy. In 1989, other countries looked at the United States as an aspirational model. You wanted your political system to be like the U.S., right? No one would say that today. You want to send your kids to American universities. You want to buy a piece of real estate in the U.S. and Canada. You'd like the reserve currency. But no one would say we want our political system to run like that. Of course, Canadians and Americans should be talking about how the politics south of the border can spill over here. Again, no one mentioned it on stage, but in his interview with me, Bremer cited last year's convoy protests in Canada's evidence of the cross-border spillage. We saw that with the truckers, you know, the convoy, that made real news in the United States because, of course, they were the same people that were talking to each other. There's a lot of pollinization, there are a lot of learning, a lot of campaigning, and the rest. None of that is healthy. Coons was in the Capitol building on January 6, 2021, when the pro-Trump insurrectionists stormed the building, an event he told me in an interview that he prefers not to recall that often. But I do focus on it pretty regularly, he said. Polarization takes hold, Coons says. When you stop negotiating, talking, listening, compromising, when you stop respecting each other, when you're convinced that the other side doesn't share your values, is only interested in running over you, the solution the sender says is to give citizens government that works for them, in a practical way. That's why I said so many attendees at the summit were focused on matters of economic integration between Canada and the United States, because that's where the solution lies to the political forces driving people apart. One of our challenges is to re-engage in a way that rebuilds confidence, no matter who the next prime minister or president is, he said. Kuhn said that he believes democracy's decline in the U.S. is linked to the breakdown of traditional media and fragmentation across the social media universe, something Bremer also sees as a big factor in what's going so wrong, not just in the U.S., but globally. I asked Bremer about the power of advertising in the last century, how the ad industry itself helped create the American middle-class dream, also with spillover effects, especially in a Canada also awash in U.S. popular culture. Could advertising not be used to help put political culture back on track too? Bremer said he'd like to believe that's possible, but the ad world has also broken down, like the media and culture itself. It no longer works in mass markets, but in micro-targeted market segments. We now know how advertising works on a very micro level, and that has taken power away from people 
and is put in the hands of those that can productize people, he said. I believe that the advertising model, particularly for social media and related algorithms, is driving polarization. That might well be one of the topics confronted at the next Candy U.S. Summit. Bremer says the sequel to this summit, and there will be one, will likely expand its agenda to tackle the complex ways in which candy U.S. relations are linked politically and culturally too, not just economically. The consensus from attendees was that the gathering was a major success in terms of the discussion it generated and the blue chip participants it attracted. It could be that it was also a success because it did not get sidetracked by the big Trump news south of the border last Tuesday. That is, after all, how Canada learned to manage his relationship while Trump was in power. Not as a sleeping elephant, but as the elephant in the room. And on to our next article. Navneet Alang, we still can't make a car that drives itself. Its unlikely artificial intelligence creations will take over the world. What is mind? I must admit, I never expected there would be any reason to ask that question outside of a philosophy class. But the hype and fear around artificial intelligence has grown to a fever pitch, making that question and others like it suddenly worth pondering. What is a superintelligence? What is an identity? Do computers have egos? This sudden contemplative turn is a result of the drumbeat of doom and hype about AI. It's going to change everything, we are told including possibly ending all life on Earth, apparently. Consider, half of AI researchers surveyed last summer believe there is a 10% chance AI will lead to human extinction. OpenAI's Sam Altman, one of AI's most prominent proponents, says he worries it might end the world. And as if that weren't enough, last week an open letter signed by a long list of people that includes tech leaders Elon Musk, Andrew Yang, and Steve Wozniak stated that it's time to take a six-month pause in AI research to consider the risks. Suddenly, we've gone from artificial intelligence being a sci-fi trope to being the source of some very public and very extreme fear. As with any claim made by the capitalist class, some skepticism is warranted. How better to hype your new product than claim it is all-powerful? But if a rare call by technologists to actually think about consequences is at least a little refreshing, the claims of both AI's doomsayers and its proponents border on the absurd. The fear expressed in the letter reflects a broader trend in which ideas about the threat posed by artificial intelligence are optimistic at best and spurious at worst. AI is not about to lead to human extinction, and to understand why, one needs to answer some of those strangely abstract questions about minds, intelligence, and identity that are nonetheless vital. According to signatories of this letter, AI systems with human competitive intelligence can pose profound risks to society and humanity. Those risks include things you'd expect, like AI replacing jobs, to the more grandiose non-human minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete, and replace us, which represents a profound change in the history of life on Earth. Here is the idea behind it. Artificial intelligence very rapidly evolves to become sentient and is able to make decisions according to its own wishes. As it exponentially scales up in capability, it becomes an impossibly evolved mind, and in its superintelligent wisdom could, on a whim, simply wipe us all out. This is wildly far-fetched, 
Our mind is a proactive will, a ego. When we act, we, we do so not simply out of the programming of our ideologies or our values, but also out of desire. When an intelligent software could act independently, it will never act intentionally because it has no identity from which to act. There is also the more vexing question of what superintelligence actually might be. It bears asking what some combination of math and logic and synthesis might specifically produce that is so beyond the realm of imagining that it will revolutionize the world. The assumption of a radical superintelligence misunderstands both what intelligence is and also what causes problems in the world. It isn't a lack of intelligence that had children starving, a housing crisis in countless cities or climate change. It is rather politics. It is how, when, and where people and technology are deployed to address issues. It betrays a blinkered view of life in which we simply aren't smart enough to fix our problems. What is in fact true is that we are stuck in the issues of real life, lived by real people, and as a result are mirrored in politics, history, culture. It's the same myopic mentality from which some make claims about a coming human extinction. If we jump to the extreme example, a superintelligent AI might only launch the nukes if it has in fact been structured and allowed to do that. That is, whatever artificial intelligence becomes, it is up to humans to decide when and where it is used and to what ends it is put. But then, even all this discussion is itself premature. Take another hugely complex software problem, the self-driving car. For years, we were told we were, they were just around the corner. That is, until people involved realized just how complicated the issue is and started saying that we are perhaps decades away from a fully autonomous car. Are we to believe then that we cannot make a car that drives itself, but we can become gods and create a non-human mind? It is not that artificial intelligence will not be transformative. The capacity to outsource the analysis and synthesis of data to technology will have both deep and broad effects. But the doom saying about AI is as much marketing as anything else. Just a lot of chatter about intelligence and mind from some very clever people who appear to have spent too little time thinking about what those things actually are. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Negro Frontier Radio Reading Service. And on to our next article. Toronto's Easter Parade marches on Sunday. Here's everything you need to know. Live music, colorful floats and bunnies, especially the chocolate kind, are all on tap for the Toronto Beaches Lions Easter Parade. Here's everything you need to know about one of the city's most celebrated family-friendly holiday events. When and where? The annual celebration is set to hit the road at 2 p.m. on Easter Sunday, beginning at Monroe Park Avenue and Queen Street East and proceeding west along Queen Street East to Woodbine Avenue. The event will go ahead, rain or shine, though the forecast promises a sunny 11 degree afternoon. What's on tap? With around 60 floats entered into the parade this year, Toronto Beaches Lions Club Secretary and Parade Director Andre Buhat says parents and children alike can expect an eye and earful. Without a doubt, there will be a lot of groups handing out candies and various things that aren't edible, he said. Kids can expect quite a bit of chocolate to be handed out this year. Attendees will also see fan favorites like Toronto Fire Pipes and Drums, Malvern Matching Band, and the beach's very own York Lions Steel Band. What's different? This marks the second year that the parade is returning post-pandemic, which has Buhot optimistic. 
We were sad that we had to stop the parade for two years during COVID. We are back last year and it was nice to be back. But last year was a little different too because it was like taking the cobwebs off. This year, we're hoping to get back to normal. More than 50,000 spectators enjoyed the event annually, ranking it among the largest Easter parades in the world, according to the Beaches Lion Club. It depends on what you qualify as a parade, because there are several religious processions and large gatherings across the world for Easter, Wuhan said. It's definitely the largest in North America. The parade was founded in 1967 by community advocate William Gordon Stewart and the East Toronto Community Association to commemorate Canada's centennial year. Originally, it took place on the boardwalk near the beach, but due to increased popularity, it was moved to Queen Street East in 1974. In 1981, after many of its members had active roles in coordinating the parade in years prior, the Beaches Line Clubs took over and became the official organizers. Previous highlights. Past parades saw Sesame Street characters handing out candy and even elephants marching down Queen Street. But one of the most memorable spectacles happened away from the street in 2014 when then-Mayor Rob Ford got stuck with 10,000 Easter eggs that he had planned to give away. At the time, news outlets reported that this was because a previous Beaches Lions Club parade director had announced that the event would be a political free zone in order to keep the focus on the parade rather than election campaigning. Buhat says this is a rule set by Lions Club International, the parent organization of the community branch, and will once again be upheld this year as the city's mayoral race is underway. One thing we will not allow in our events are expressions of political affiliations only because that tends to divide people. We're never allowed political participation, he said. In terms of Ford and his excess of eggs, Mahat says he remembered it a little differently. Elected officials are encouraged and welcomed to attend the parade as representatives of the community, he said, citing Deputy Mayor Jennifer McKelvey's apparent confirmed attendance to this year's event. Ford was already serving as mayor and his attendance would have been appreciated. However, the then mayor, however, the then mayor who died of cancer in 2016 allegedly had a bad habit of throwing candies from the center of the parade towards a crowd, potentially endangering young children who would be enticed to climb over the boundaries to pick them up. He was told not to, which later resulted in him being banned. It had nothing to do with distributing the eggs, Pahat said. That's the spirit. Pahat says he anticipates another successful year for the parade. In essence, the parade is an expression of community spirit. He said, it's an opportunity for community groups and businesses to showcase their talent. So we're happy to be back again. We're happy to continue doing our part in keeping life in the beaches fun and exciting. Road closures. Expect full and partial road closures around the parade route. As the TTC will be rerouting buses and streetcars through the area, passengers can expect delays. Police said that drivers can also expect delays and should consider alternate routes or methods of transportation. 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Parcel Road, Queen Street East from Monroe Park Avenue to Fallingbrook Road. 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Full Road, Queen Street East from Monroe Park Avenue to Fallingbrook Road. Nursewood Road from Queen Street East to 24 Nursewood Road, 1.30 to 4.30 p.m. Full Road, Queen Street East from Woodbine Avenue to Fallingbrook Road. 2 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. Full Road, Woodbine Avenue, from Queen Street East to Lakeshore Boulevard East, Lakeshore Boulevard East from Coxwell Avenue to Woodbine Avenue. The RCMP keep failing. People keep dying. After Puerto Peak, they shouldn't get another chance. 
12 hours after the first frantic 911 call came from Puerto Peak on the night of April 18, 2020, the deranged killer and a replica RCMP vehicle drove past Mother Street, 40 kilometers away in Truro. He killed three more people that morning before the Mounties finally gunned him down at a gas station outside Halifax, bringing his total number of victims to 20 people, including an expectant mother. For many hours, he roamed far and wide, murdering with impunity while the Royal Canadian Mountie Police incompetently tried and failed to stop him. As a Nova Scotian, I do not trust the RCMP to keep my loved ones and neighbors safe and want them out of my province, replaced by an accountable force with local roots. The government of Justin Trudeau has the opportunity and responsibility to give meaning to the deaths of the 22 victims and the terrible suffering of their loved ones by making sure the people of Puerto Peak and similar communities across Canada are served by a minimally competent police force, which means a different police force. The RCMP failure in Puerto Peak was already obvious to everyone in Nova Scotia because they observed it in real time. Now the government has been officially advised of those facts in a form of a report from the in official inquiry. The force's failures revealed by the inquiry are wide-ranging and profound. For years, the RCMP ignored reports about the threat posed by a perpetrator, a wealthy white man with a track record of violence, the result of implicit bias on the part of officers. After he snapped and finally started killing, the poor Mounties on the spot had received very little training in exercising command and control during a critical incident response. One officer, who had been drinking rum before the shooting started, made the unwise decision to report for work in spite of his possible intoxication. Another made questionable decisions because his son was in the line of fire. The force did not put a scene commander in charge, so the response was disorganized. Officers were not familiar with the geography of the area. They did not listen to community members who told them that the perpetrator was driving an replica RCMP cruiser. They decided, for no particular reason, he was likely dead. Well, in fact, he escaped on an unmarked back road, went to ground overnight, and continued his rampage next day, killing nine more people. The RCMP failed to call in the Truro police for help, failed to send an emergency alert that would help have saved lives, shot up a fire hall where victims were sheltering, and most terribly, failed to find the perpetrator for 12 hours. After he was finally stopped, the RCMP continued to fill Nova Scotians. Although family members were pleading with the Mounties to check on their loved ones, it took them 19 hours to find the remains of some victims. They did not properly inform family members of deaths, returned a vehicle with body parts inside, failed to provide information in a time when people who were suffering greatly, failed to answer media questions, failed to initiate a review of the force's failures. They even re-victimized the first victim of the rampage, the perpetrator of the common-law partner whom he assaulted before he started killing. She escaped and eventually relayed important information to the police, but they later charged her with providing him with ammunition, although she had no idea as to its purpose. There is no reason to think that the RCMP has learned from this episode, or will. Former Commissioner Brenda Luckey, who has since retired, was unaware of the details of the tragedy when she testified at the inquiry. On the day the report was released, the interim commissioner could not answer questions about it because he had not bothered to read it. The force will not accept responsibility for its failures. It can hear no evil but itself. It has a long tradition of silence and unaccountability, relying instead on the amazing power of its brand, the Red Surge and Setson, which is at the heart of our idea of what it means to be Canadian. These failures, and this is not a complete list, are systemic and intrinsic. The RCMP is not able to provide adequate service either in its corresponsibility, federal policing, or community policing on back roads across Canada. The failures have been repeatedly pointed out by earlier inquiries and reports by judges, professors, and journalists. There is a broad consensus about what needs to be done. 
the forest uses rural contract policing as the bottom rung of a career ladder, sending new Mounties to work in communities they don't know. Worse, they routinely and secretly understaff road attachments, keeping that information from the communities they serve. The detachment in charge of Keaton and Porter Peak Safe was down six officers at the time of the rampage. In vast parts of the country, we rely on understaffed, overworked Mounties, driving on lonely dirt roads with little hope of timely backup when things go wrong. It is a tough life, and the RCMP relying as it does on a paramilitary structure that prizes obedience is too tough on its officers. Too often when things go wrong, the force is not up to the job, and Mounties die unnecessarily. In Mayorthorpe, out of four officers were murdered in 2005 in Mockton. Three were killed in 2014 after the force ignored the lessons from Mayorthorpe. The path to reform is clear. The force should get out of contract policing, focus on federal matters, such as national security and money laundering, and let local police with roots in the community take over the dirt roads. The inquiry recommends that Ottawa conduct a review and then be ready to reassign some policing tasks to other agencies, including new provincial or municipal forces. As things stand, the federal government makes that more or less impossible because it subsidizes RCMP contracting policing by 10 to 30 cents on the dollar. For cash trip jurisdictions such as Nova Scotia's Goldchester County, which contains Porter Peak, that means local decision makers have no choice but to stick with the Mounties no matter how bad they are. The Mounties have shown time and time again that they will not, cannot reform themselves, and successive governments have failed to rise to the challenge, likely because they are afraid of the force. There is no reason to doubt that the Trudeau government has the will to do what is necessary. They are forced to call this inquiry only after the families of the victims raised such how that liberal seats were at risk. There are no good political reasons to tear apart the National Police Force, which mostly operates in territory where the liberals do not hold the seats. It would be difficult and expensive, and there is a huge risk of political blowback. On the other hand, failing to act would betray the memories of the 22 dead and leave our loved ones and neighbors at risk. Stephen Mayher is an award-winning investigative journalist, the author of three novels, and a Harvard Newman Fellow. He lives on the south shore of Nova Scotia. And on to our next article. Letter from Ukraine, the failure of General Frost. Spring has rushed into Ukraine. We usually have snow in March, but on this March day, it was 12 degrees Celsius outside. I received a message from our mayor that the electricity in our city would not be turned off for the next few days, finally. The winter seemed so long and so dark. Russia had high hopes for Frost. However, natural forces were on the side of Ukraine this time. General Frost is a mythical person who helped Russia in several important military battles. Frost prevented Napoleon Bonaparte from occupying Moscow in 1812. During the Second World War, cold weather spoiled Germany's plans to attack Russia. The German army had no winter clothing and had more losses from the cold than from the Soviet army. The cold also affected the equipment. There was no antifreeze, so the German equipment broke down. Russia expected many victories this winter with the help of General Frost, not only in Ukraine, but also to influence other European countries, which under the pressure of their citizens would stop military and financial aid to Ukraine. Russia often broadcast news videos of German citizens buying candles, batteries, and flashlights in a panic. During the war, my niece left Ukraine to continue her studies at a German medical university. Her German student friends were shocked by this Russian fake news. The Germans were upset, but there was no panic. Russia cut off gas supplies to EU countries and waited for Europe to freeze, hoping that Europeans would be unable to survive without Russian gas and be forced to negotiate and make concessions. 
General Frost failed as winter was unusually warm. Europe also compensated for the lack of Russian gas by increasing the share of liquefied gas in EU countries significantly, limited consumption resorted to savings. Meanwhile, the Russians strategically, systematically bombarded Ukrainian energy infrastructure. The threat was real and great. Millions of Ukrainians were left without heat and electricity for the winter. The most authoritative analysts predicted frozen cities and a humanitarian crisis with millions of refugees from Ukraine. It was frightening and cold at the time. There were days when there were only four hours of electricity a day. I remember a funny story. My neighbor ordered 500 flashlights on AliExpress on the eve of the blackouts. He dreamed of making good money. The parcel was delayed coming from China for so long that they lost their relevance. He donates flashlights to all his friends now. All he earned was a few thousand reprimands from his wife. In this difficult time, Ukrainians showed themselves from the best side. Their courageous struggle attracted the attention of the world. Entire countries, private companies, film actors, and ordinary citizens began to collect money and send thousands of generators and other aid to Ukraine. Generators helped a lot. Over 300,000 generators of various capacities were delivered to Ukraine. In December, there were so many of them that it started to pollute the air. The Russian attacks provided massive power outages and heating failures. However, hundreds of Russian missiles and drones did not destroy the energy system of Ukraine. Built in Soviet times, it was designed for the possibility of a nuclear war. The system has been quickly restored. Allies of Ukraine are a great help. They provided us with modern air defense equipment. In the second half of winter, the Russians ran out of both missiles and shahids. The attacks decreased and more and more missiles and drones became the prey of Ukrainian defenders of the sky. It was a very difficult time for the Ukrainian people, but we preserved. No one taught Ukrainians how to behave in such a situation. There are no such instructions. We wrote a new history of our country. We wrote our personal instructions. Ukrainians have passed the test, and I am convinced that there are still many difficulties ahead. But spring is ahead, a time of change and hope. And on to our next article. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. With Women app helps women assess their safety. Every time we have a public conversation about violence at home, it makes the private conversations possible. This is why we at MAP Centre for Urban Health Solutions at St. Michael's Hospital, a side of Unity Health Toronto, were encouraged to see Wendy Gillis and Alicia Hasham's article outlining different ways to get support if home is not a safe place. We would like to update this list with our recently launched With Women suite of apps, available in English, French, and Spanish. This, they can be found at maphealth.ca with dash apps. It is very hard to recognize the early signs of an unsafe relationship. But when women know their safety status and have access to local resources, they are better equipped to take action. These tools can help women assess safety, rank concerns, and support the creation of a tailored safety plan via connection with local resources across the GTHA. The technology is discreet and easy to use. For example, the With Women app asks nine questions that screen for a variety of unsafe behaviors. Most importantly, the apps are secure, private, and web-based. No download necessary. These apps are available for use on phones, computers, tablets, anywhere you can use the internet. These apps include a quick exit function as a safety feature. 
Intimate partner violence is enabled by shame and stigma. Our team created these apps so we can use technology as a tool to keep the conversation going. And on to our next article. Google's cloud, Sam Sebastian, on how the pandemic accelerated the shift to cloud, converting the skeptics, and why Canada is now home. Much in tech has changed since Sam Sebastian first joined Google in 2006. First, he and his colleagues were experiencing newfangled search advertising to customers. Today, the Ohio-born executive is at the forefront of another major leap, cloud computing, as Canadian head of Google Cloud's operations. When COVID-19 forced much of the world's economy into lockdown, the thought of keeping data trapped on office-bound servers was intolerable to many CEOs. Cloud storage boomed and forced painstaking digital transformation through in a matter of months rather than years. Google Cloud was fairly well positioned to capitalize on the sudden demand for off-premises and adaptable places to store data. In a matter of minutes, companies can quickly scale up their storage to handle an influx of new data or shed excess capacity. This flexibility is appealing to all three of Google Cloud's main cohorts of customers, digital native films like Lightspeed, stalwarts like Canadian Tire, and the next generation AI-oriented customers like Mobius. To many average consumers, whether or not their favorite brands rely on cloud or locally stored data is irrelevant. But firms like Google have made big business from convincing some kind of reluctant CEOs to shell out for new operating systems capable of retrieving data from anywhere. You've bounced to and from multiple executive roles at Google. Your last position was in 2017. What keeps you coming back? Yeah, I'm a boomerang Googler. There's a few of us around. I started Google 17 years ago in the US. I was in different roles in the States on the ad side for eight years. About nine years ago, I moved to my family to Canada and ran the Canadian business for about three and a half years. At the time, most of our business was ads. I loved every minute of it, but I had the opportunity to be the CEO of Pelmerex Group, a big brand that included the Weather Network and Meteo Media. They had a business in Spain, out Tiempo, so after 11 years at Google, an opportunity to be a CEO of a strong Canadian brand that needed to digitally transform was too good of an opportunity to pass up. I thought I had a once in a lifetime opportunity in the early days of Google to be on the ground floor when search advertising and YouTube was first kicking off. Now I have the opportunity to come back and almost have a second chance at a once in a million opportunity, cloud, which is new to many folks. We're on the cusp of this generative AI revolution which is also tied in with the cloud. To be on another rocket ship with another kind of revolutionary shift, which was too good to pass up. What's it like going back to a very senior position at Google after being a CEO at Pelmerex? In the end, I've always thought about what I want to do in my career in three ways. Number one, I want to keep learning. As long as I'm in a job, and I'm learning a whole new set of skills, it doesn't really matter to me what role I'm in. Number two, I love to lead. Regardless of whether I'm leading an entire organization or a country inside of a larger multinational, so long as I'm leading or working with people that inspire me, then I'm good. And lastly, I need to add value. I had never done the CEO role before, 
I could learn a ton. But I was an ads guy for 30 years, so at Google I had an opportunity to learn. I could lead great young Googlers and very experienced Googlers in the cloud. I could both learn from them, but also be inspired by them. I knew the playbook for Google on the ad side because I had built out its country infrastructure. You have a lot of leadership experience, but you're new to cloud computing itself. Are you still learning about it as you go? Are you leading on other people? How does that work? We have an incredible team who has made huge investments in the space from training, evangelizing and technology. I lean on the team significantly, but it's a relatively new space. There are very few veterans in this space because it has only really been mature for a handful of years. My ultimate clients are CEOs, the C-suites and boards, and I'm trying to convince them to make these tough decisions to modernize their infrastructure. And I did that for five years, figuring out how I was going to migrate on-premise stuff to the cloud at Pomerex. We all had this MBA in cloud for two years during COVID, meaning anyone who was running a company had to figure out how to do it from home. COVID really saw demand for cloud services explode. So to a certain extent, I had been through these wars myself as a C-suite leader. Some businesses are very skeptical about the benefits of cloud computing. How do you convert them? There are a couple of ways. Number one, every business has a core function. The core function of Pomerx was weather forecasting. It was not managing data centers or modernizing technology. Doing so requires a huge set of resources, expertise, and skills. To an extent, I can rent that experience and technology and use it as I need it. That's the ideal business model for someone who wants to really focus on their core business. When you sit down with a CEO, they will get that right away. Then you have to go deeper and ask about the objections. They may say a cloud migration will take a long time. It's not as secure as on-site storage, where there is no specific solution for the industry, but we can counter each of these objections. So we have to talk at the highest level with the CEO to inspire them and then work inside the organization with our partners. COVID was a pretty big demand generator because all of a sudden folks had to manage this stuff remotely, which is a bit more difficult when you're not in the cloud. The vast majority of digital transformations fail. How are you trying to change that equation? A couple of things. Digital transformations are huge projects, and any huge project comes with a lot of risk. What we try to do is break that project down, atomize it, and create a bunch of different milestones over time, and then pull all the right people on various parts of the project. One client, one better, one cloud player can't solve everything. Whenever there is a burning platform and a company has to succeed, there is no other alternative. COVID was a great example. You'd be amazed at what a company or an industry can do in a matter of months. Now we're trying to leverage that to create a sense of a burning platform, a new, no excuse but success mentality so we can push folks to move. There is a perception that cloud computing is a lot less secure than relying on on-site data storage. What do you say to critics who say to avoid the cloud because it is insecure? Just look at Google, and you can look at Amazon as well. These are massive companies that built massive infrastructure targeted by the biggest cyber threats, both internally and externally, of any company in the world. And they've been secure. We've had to build so much threat detection, security, and authentication protocols inside all of our own technology. Now, all we're doing is making those same attributes available to customers. The hard part for customers is that they feel out of control. 
Once we walk them in though, through how frankly, they're more exposed to risk with the work they're doing on premises. Their objections go away. Some of the biggest threats, some of the biggest threats come from people inside an organization who have access to a lot of things that they might not otherwise have with the cloud. A lot of Googlers in executive roles are going back to San Francisco. Do you think that's in the cards for you? I don't. That was a thinking when I moved to Canton nine years ago. A lot of times, executives moved up here, they do a stint, learn some things, and take it back. After four years, the kids love the country. My wife and I love the country. We have built some great relationships. I had a bunch of profile inside the country so that I could continue to take on new opportunities, and so our entire perception changed. That's why I had no problem leaving Google to go to a Canadian company and get even more experience inside Canada. Now, I've come back to Google and Canada. Both of my kids are in university in Canada. We've got no plans to leave. We love it here, and we still have lots of family back in the States, and we go back and forth, obviously, but this is home now. This conversation has been edited for length and clarity. You have been listening to a reading of articles and features from the April 8th issue of the Toronto Star. Your reader has been Esther Provo. Thank you for listening.